This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, there's a reason that fairy tales tend to end with, and they lived happily ever after, because that's what feels best for us to believe when the prince and the princess get married, everything is perfect. But what about us? Is happiness really the goal of marriage, or is there more to it? Well, joining me now is Kevin Thompson. He's marriage and parenting conference speaker and also lead pastor at Community Bible Church in Western Arkansas. And today we'll be talking about his book. It is called Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and last. I like that. Kevin, so good to have you here. Janet, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you. Oh, it's my honor to have you here. I think you say something really good right at the outset. You say happiness was never intended to be the main focus of marriage. And I thought, well, there are a few million people who need to hear that today, aren't there? There's no doubt. And happiness is definitely a desire that we all have, but it's kind of contrarian advice. Whenever we pursue after happiness primarily, we tend not to get it. And yet, whenever we pursue after commitment, after love, after trust, after building a healthy relationship, happiness tends to be the byproduct of those wise choices. And so that's why I lay out these eight commitments that really aren't mine. They come from Jesus. And yet, whenever we tend to obey them and apply them to our relationships, the byproduct of that uh, tends to be this general concept of happiness. Yeah, so good. While you lay out some of these modern rules for marriage, which I thought were really insightful, these are some of the ideas we have when we enter into marriage that things like there's somebody just for me, my soulmate, these sorts of things. What are some of these rules that people think apply to marriage but are actually not really real? Yeah, we, we do just assume that uh, that there is this one other person that's just for us. And if we can ever find that right person, then marriage itself will be easy. And, and so we, we think to ourselves that, you know, every Romeo has a Juliet, every Pebbles has a Bam Bam. <laughs> uh, and, and so we're looking for that person. And then whenever we get into marriage and it's difficult for us, we begin to think, well, maybe we just chose the wrong person. Mm. And when in reality, there is, we're all marrying sinners. We're sinful people marrying sinful people. Right. And so marriage was never intended to be this perfect relationship. Instead, it oftentimes is the avenue by which God wants to reveal to you your own brokenness and uh, within the concept of committed love, transform your heart. And so marriage is supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to be hard. And yet one of the modern rules of relationships is that we're supposed to run from pain. Yeah. We don't think love ever includes pain, and so we tend to run from it and avoid it in so many ways, which means we, we avoid issues, we're, we're scared. In the midst of that moment, we make marriage primarily just about us and forget that it's ultimately about God and bringing glory to Him. We forget about the ripple effect that our relationships have uh, on other people. And if marriage, is, if there's this one other person for us, we really don't have to work on it in any way. Right. And so we can protect our own hearts, and we don't have to be that loving. We can kind of ignore the truth. Uh, and in the end, marriage, we think the modern rule is that marriage is supposed to be easy. And if it's not, there must be something wrong with the other person. Yeah. Yeah. It's always the other person. The problem lies over there. Not with me ever. 
No, absolutely. And because, let's face it, in a, we kind of live in a survival of the fittest world. And so from the very beginning, we are trained to hide our pain, to hide our incapabilities, to always appear strong. Hmm. And so for us to take responsibility for a failure of our own or a struggle within our relationship is a very dangerous thing in a world that exploits and manipulates the weakest among us. Yes, right. Well, how is it that Christians, though, have fallen for this fairy tale game where marriage is supposed to be about my fulfillment? Where did we ever go wrong on that? It's one thing for the world to think that way, but I think there are a lot of Christians who think that way. If you really got to the the bottom rung of, of their thinking about marriage, well, it ought to be fulfilling. It ought to be meeting my needs. I don't know if everybody would phrase it that way, but why do we think that way, do you think? Because we read the Bible wrong. We read the Bible as centrally about us, and yeah. we think we are the main character. Yeah. And so it, it, it makes perfect sense that whenever we read the Bible that way, whenever we replace God with ourselves as we read Scripture on a daily basis, then literally, even if we do our daily devotions, we are doing daily devotions to ourselves. Mm. And so it's not, it's not shocking to us that all of a sudden we begin to think marriage is about us. If the Bible is about us, shouldn't marriage be about us? And then there is this ripple effect, I think, into every area of life where we have just, it's nothing more than idolatry. We have idolized ourselves. And I think many of the broken marriages that we now experience is nothing more than a symptom of this greater problem of pride where we have replaced God with ourselves. Right. You talk about the importance of humility in marriage, and one of the points that you make about the commitments is to happily humble yourselves. And certainly, I don't think there's much more of a humbling institution that anybody could be involved in more than marriage. (laughs) It's a very sanctifying institution. It's wonderful, but it's also very humbling. What are you talking about there, though, where you advise people to happily humble yourself? To to me, this is where marriage truly does begin. It begins with an awareness that I don't know what it takes to make marriage work, that we together really don't know. We just know that we love each other, we're committed to one another, and now we're going to humble ourselves to God, humble ourselves to the experts, recognize our own brokenness, recognize the brokenness we have between us, and now we're going to try to learn and grow and achieve, knowing that we're going to fail along the way, but then we're going to lavish each other with, with love and mercy as we walk forward in life. I think too often couples enter in and having grown up in a home and having seen a marriage modeled for them in some way, having watched television and books and seen everything from Hollywood, I think people, a lot of people assume they know what it takes to make a marriage work. This should be one of the great benefits of being a Christian. We begin with the concept of humility, that God is the ultimate designer, and He is teaching us how he created this world. And so as a Christian, we should begin with humility to recognize we don't know what this is all about. God, show us. Teach us. And as we learn, as we grow, as we change, uh, then we can continue to move forward. But the moment we begin to think that we have it figured out, uh, we are in tremendous danger. Yeah, that's right. What would you say are some of the warning signs of pride in a marriage? Oh, I think the, the inability to allow your spouse to influence you, mm. when suddenly you don't, even, you don't even begin to ask your spouse their opinion about things, because you arrogantly believe that you already know what the answer is going to be. Uh, whenever you have this tremendous ability to constantly find fault in what they're doing, instead of seeing the good, uh, whenever you have a, almost an addiction to yourself, to all the attention, that you, can't, you almost can't stand for your spouse to be in the spotlight. Mm that you need to be, that your opinion ranks above theirs. Um, probably the issue of contempt is one of the greatest signs. When you begin to have a sense of contempt toward your spouse, that just the, 
the volume of their voice irritates you. Uh, that's, that would be a scary place to begin to be from this concept of pride. Cause, cause I think what's so difficult about pride, and I say it happily, is that pride divides and destroys, but humility has this ability to unite and multiply. Yes. And, uh, so when, when pride begins to erode into our hearts, it will destroy our relationships. That's true. Have you seen a lot of, when you've been doing biblical counseling and, and dealing with marriages, have you seen a lot of people show contempt for their spouses? Oh, there's no question. You know, John Gottman, the, the famous uh, marriage counselor, says that contempt is what he calls one of the four horsemen huh. of divorce. Oh, wow. And uh, it's something that he looks for in a very easy way. And so there is no question that in almost every uh, divorce that ends up contempt eventually makes its way in there, and oftentimes it is one of the very first signs that there. And it, it may not even be seen in a very public way. A lot of times it's a private contempt, and, and so somebody can outwardly be very loving and kind and compassionate, but they get home and they just become very abrupt, very short, uh, and really it, it's no longer this exchange of communication and ideas and love. Uh, but instead, it is this, you're below me, and I deserve better than you. Wow. And often over really dumb things, I would imagine. The small things tend to be blown up to in incredible heights. Oh, there's no question. And, you know, whenever I do a wedding ceremony, we, we come to the giving of the bride, which really comes from a an old, kind of a bad place in our history when women were seen as, as material, right, as as money or possessions, that's where the giving of the bride comes from. But I love to still include that in weddings that I do, because I remind the couples, specifically the husbands, that for as long as you see your wife, for as long as you see your husband now as a gift that's coming from a family, they're giving this person to you, your marriage will thrive. Oh, I like that. The moment you begin to think to yourself that I deserve this or I deserve better than this, you're in tremendous amount of danger. So I love I'd love to set all that up. I'll tell you what, Kevin, hang on a moment. We're going to go to a short break. We'll be back with Kevin Thompson. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. A burning issue worthy of public discussion across America is expanding the Supreme Court. Our government was designed to have three independent branches for an effective system of checks and balances. Court expansion would undermine the independence of the judiciary branch and make it a political arm of the legislative branch with partisan results. Watch a new video on the critical importance of the Supreme Court in ending abortion. Visit lifeissues.org and click on the top banner. Hi, this is Janet. It's been exciting to see so many of you help our ministry partner, Heart for Lebanon, this month. We had a goal to help bring the hope of Jesus to 100 families, and I'm so pleased to be able to tell you that to date, over 200 families have been served. We thank God for those of you who participated, but if you didn't have a chance to invest in what God is doing there, it's not too late. Just call 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499, or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Kevin Thompson. He is lead pastor at Community Bible Church in Western Arkansas and author of the book, Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last. And Kevin, we were talking about this happily humbling yourselves advice that you're giving to readers, which is such an important thing. Another one that you mentioned, though, is happily embracing the hurt. And obviously, if you're married for any length of time, you understand it is possible and it is normal to hurt one another in the course of life. But I like what you say because you stress that marriage, I thought this was a really good point. When you're single and someone gets on your nerves, you can get away from them. You can say, oh, I'm going to spend the night in. I don't want to go out and, you know, uh, go get ice cream or anything with you tonight. I just want to sit home. And you can't do that when you're married. You have to be able to face these things. So how, how do you advise couples to face that hurt and embrace it? You know, in writing the book, I mean, I had this idea, this concept of kind of how I wanted to go about it. This is the chapter that that touched me the most, that shocked me the most. One of the reasons I love to write and preach is you just never know kind of where the biblical text is going to take you. And this was a surprising place for me. But now that I see it, uh, it, it's so important to me from this concept of marriage was never meant to totally satisfy us and fulfill us. That is ultimately God's role. But in our society, we tend to place marriage in that place, Hmm. that this is the one point that's really supposed to give us everything that we want, everything that we need. And then we get into it and we fail one another. I'm never going to fully be the man that my wife deserves. She's never going to be fully everything that I dreamed of uh, in in a wife. Uh, This marriage itself is never going to fully be what society says it should be and what we think it should be. And, and, And so often we become, we either live in denial of that or we are dismayed by it. But, but I think the encouragement now is, is to embrace it. And I'm not, I'm not saying this in a way that you need to excuse bad behavior, by no means. But there is a reality. My, my wife is a, is a travel junkie. She, she'll go anywhere in any moment. I'm a stay-at-home kind of body. She has to convince me to go anywhere. <laughs> there are times where I mourn for her, thinking she deserves a husband that would just jump on any plane at any moment. Now, that's not me. And I have my own strengths. But that's one aspect that she's going to have to mourn, that, you know what, getting Kevin to travel all the time is going to be a little bit more difficult. And even whenever we do travel, it may not be quite as fun uh, because I'm a little bit more anxious, a little bit more nervous. We have to mourn that. Hmm. And the funny thing about mourning is we live in a culture now where, again, we're running away from pain, one of the modern rules of marriage. We're running away from pain. And whenever we do that, it begins to chip away at our ability to truly love. To me, the irony is this. Those who mourn well love well. 
Because whenever you can recognize the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness and, and things aren't as good as I wanted them to be in aspects, it gives you a much deeper appreciation for the things that are good, True. for the strengths that are there. Whenever you've mourned the, the, the failures of yourself and you've experienced that grace, it gives you some appreciation for how God has made you strong in places or how marriage is a positive thing. And yeah. so to me, whenever we begin to not mourn the failings of ourselves, of this fallen world, of the institution of marriage itself, whenever we fail to mourn those things, it actually robs us of being able to fully experience the love and the good that is there. Yeah, and that's just realism, isn't it, at, at, at the root? Because you're never going to marry somebody who wants to do everything you want to do at every moment. And in some respects, if God gave us somebody who was like that, what kind of marriage would that be? We'd never be challenged. We'd never grow. We wouldn't be as sanctified as he'd want us to be. I mean, there is a, an upside in that regard as well. Oh, there's no question about that. I mean, the the reality is the last thing I need to do is be married to me. Yeah, right, right. right. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the last thing I need. And so, so these differences are can be strengths, no doubt. And, uh, and it is this idea of just confront the truth and the reality of the way things actually are instead of living in denial or despair about them. Yeah, that's good. Kevin, what about happily avoiding both apathy and aggression? You had mentioned this in the beginning of your book, and then you have a chapter devoted to this. What are you talking about there? Yeah, I think apathy and aggression are really uh, two sides of, of, of the exact same coin. And, and ultimately what I'm calling us to is this, this form of meekness, where we have this strength. The old, the old preacher illustration of meekness is power under control, like a racehorse that's now directed in the right way. Uh, God has given us strengths and abilities, skills, and, and we're supposed to now use those strengths to the benefit and the well-being of our spouse. And then that ripples over into our children, into the communities and things like that. The problem is when sin enters the world, we are tempted either to be apathetic about things that we should be passionate about or to be passionate about things that really don't matter. Yeah. And so we can either be apathetic or aggressive. And both of those things can now it's now us using our strength to actually injure our spouse. And so you think about this, uh, a tense conversation begins to come up. Uh, one spouse might raise the newspaper up and, and almost emotionally shut down, not willing to respond. They're being apathetic in that moment. The other one might raise their voice, begin to yell, shout, and scream. All they're trying to do basically by yelling and shouting and screaming is to almost beat down their spouse because they really don't want to reveal their heart. Hmm. What God calls us to is a meek way, a strength that's under control, a strength now directed to the benefit of our spouse to where we are willing to confront issues we're not going to be passive about them, and yet we're not going to be overly aggressive to try to almost scare away our spouse. Right. Instead, we're going to be willing to lay our heart out on the table and to attack issues together rather than attacking each other. Yeah. And, well, and this ties back into Galatians 5 and the fruits of the Spirit. Self-control is one of those fruits, and we need to remember that that's what we're called to. Oh, absolutely. No doubt. Yeah. Now, what about the one I'm, I'm skipping around a little here because I know we're not going to have time to talk about all eight people can read it in your book. But you also talk about happily refusing power struggles. And probably everyone who is married who's listening can relate to this, that at times there will be power struggles. How do you refuse that? Because you may feel very strongly and you don't want to stop the fight because it's a fight worth having and your spouse may feel the same. But what do you do to resolve that? Yeah, I, I view this almost in, in like you go back to fifth grade earth science and plate tectonics. Oh, yeah. And I remember studying <laughs> back then, you, you had these continents, right? These plates that were pushing against each other. Yeah. And over time, the tension was building and all of that until finally there was this earthquake, this great explosion. That's the way a lot of marriages are. 
they will quietly be pushing against each other until all of a sudden there is this great big explosion. And I think what Jesus offers to us now is this reality that my wife and I are these two land masses, and no matter how much we're in love and how much we appreciate one another, we can never be moving perfectly in the exact same direction. There will be this tension. We're pushing against each other for what we want, for what we think is best, all those things. And now what we need is we need something to, to kind of smooth out the tension, to release the tension to some extent. And to me, that's what mercy is. Whenever we receive mercy from God and we begin to give it to our spouse, it causes us to no longer try to hold on to the power, but instead to have this willingness to mutually submit uh, to one another. It's one of the great invitations of the kingdom. The world says that if you can get the power, you can be happy. Jesus says if you will submit, you can find this happiness. And to me, the only thing that can make that happen is mercy itself. Where mercy is not present, a husband and wife are fighting to control one another, fighting for the control of the relationship. But when mercy is present, they both willfully submit to one another, and in so doing, both end up being elevated. Yeah, that's a really good point. When you talk about happily enduring whatever may come, I think that's a good way of saying it, because over the long haul, you're going to go through so many things in your marriage. And, you know, somebody said once, I can't remember who said this, but somebody said, you know, if marriage were so easy, why do you think you had to take the vows? You know, (laughs) the vows are there for a reason, because it's not always going to be easy. How do you walk through marriage, though, whatever may come? Because we have so many outs in our culture now. Well, if you're not fulfilled here, or if he's not doing it for you there, or the woman got fat, you know, she's not fulfilling your needs, whatever. You can walk away and find someone who does meet your needs. There's so much cultural allowance for that kind of thinking. How do you get people into a mindset of whatever comes, I'm staying and I'm going to be true and I'm going to love my spouse? It's funny because right after we say the vows in in a wedding ceremony that I do, I so often pray at that moment. And oftentimes my prayer is, God, these are awfully big and bold promises spoken into an unknown dark future. Hmm. Make them be prophetic. Hmm. And it really is this concept of we don't know what the future is going to hold, but whatever comes our way, God knows it. He sees it. At minimum, He allows it. And now, side by side, we're going to walk through this together and endure it together. Not just endure it as in go through it, but we're actually going to grow and learn about Him, about ourselves, and about one another. And and it really is this, what I call a dogged determinism, that we trust God, we trust the sovereignty, and whatever comes our way, God has allowed that to now change and transform our hearts. And if you have that perspective... You will end up walking through life hand in hand, fighting together against issues, standing together against challenges. If you don't have that perspective, anytime a tough problem comes, instead of attacking the problem together, you will begin to attack each other. Mm. And so I think it's very important just to make this commitment. And literally, you can go on a vacation, you can have a dinner night out, you can just pray, God, we don't know what the future holds, but from this day forward, We are united, we are together, and we will do whatever it takes together to get through whatever issue might come. That's really good. What do you say to the listener who says, all of this is great, but what if my spouse isn't on board? What if it's just me, I'm doing all the giving, I'm doing all the sacrificing, I'm the only meek one, how do I keep it up if my spouse is not willing to do the same, and how do I keep from resenting him or her? That's a great question. I have tremendous empathy, and I know a lot of people who are in that boat and in that situation. My encouragement is if you do not feel like your spouse is all in it, 
that you go to them, you tell them why you fell in love, you tell them that you want you you want more of the good parts that y'all have, and that you want to go together to a good Christian counselor and begin to work on this marriage to figure it out. And if they won't go with you, you go by yourself. And you begin to ask those questions of, of how can I set good boundaries? How can I love well? How can I follow Jesus? And at the same time, not be walked on, not excuse bad behavior or anything like that. To me, it's such a big issue, and we are so emotionally involved and invested. We truly need a professional to walk alongside of us uh, whenever we are in that boat. Well, very good. Well, the name of the book is Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last by Kevin Thompson. So good to have you here, Kevin. Thank you very, very much for being with us. Janet, thank you so much. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. I love the words from Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. What the Lord is stressing there in his word is so important for all of us to consider today. How much do we seek the things that are above or set our minds on the things that are above as opposed to thinking and talking constantly about merely the things of this world? Well, we're going to discuss it today with the Reverend Maurice Roberts. He is an author, international conference speaker, and emeritus minister in the Free Church of Scotland, continuing. And we're going to get some of his thoughts from his booklet on the topic. So helpful. It's entitled, How Do I Develop Heavenly Mindedness and Spiritual Conversation? Reverend Roberts, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. pleasure Thank you. Thank you. Well, I am so glad to see you address some of these things. This is very reminiscent of a lot of the old Puritan literature, which I love so much, having our minds set on Christ and the things that are to come. It's wonderful. Oh, these are very important subjects in our day and age where there's so much frivolity and careless speaking. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of these definitions, because heavenly mindedness, I I suppose, could be interpreted a number of ways. But how are you using that term? What does it mean, would you say, to be heavenly minded? I make three points in the little booklet. First of all, I argue it is to understand that God exists and that he is sovereign in all that happens in this world. That's the first point. The second point I make is We should be grateful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. And the third point I make is we should believe that God's dealings with us in this life are always consistent with the teaching of the Bible. Right. Absolutely essential. So let's take on the first point when you talk about needing a conscious understanding of God's existence and sovereignty. We are always conscious and people will say, Christians will say, I know God is sovereign. I know that God exists. But what is the disconnect that Christians sometimes have between knowing that and then being heavenly minded about those truths? 
I think it is that they don't always apply as they should do the text of Scripture which says, be sure your sins will find you out. Hmm. We should watch our behavior, our conversation, and always realize that what we're doing or saying is always, all the time, under God's surveillance and under his eye. Right. So being aware of the Lord's presence more than we sometimes are. Very important that we should be, yes. Yes, that's a really good point. Well, the other thing that you mentioned is this only begins after a person has been regenerated, which seems obvious, but I guess for a lot of people, it would be difficult to cultivate a heavenly mindedness if you are just a Christian in name only and not truly born again. Well, what happens at the new birth is that the soul is made alive to God's being and to his truth in the gospel. And it means that before we are born again, we don't really take the things of God very seriously, even if we're brought up to them. But as soon as we are born again, immediately we see with conviction in our heart of hearts that what the Bible teaches is what God means us to know, to believe, and to practice. Right. That's so true. Now, for the other spiritual conversation, this is the other phrase that you talk about in the book, what is spiritual conversation? How would you explain that to a Christian, what you're talking about? Spiritual conversation is disciplining ourselves when we're in conversation with somebody else to speak about the things of God as distinct from the things of the world. Now, of course, there are times, obviously, when we have to speak about common everyday things. But our concern is that we don't always speak about everyday things, but that we discipline ourselves when it's appropriate to raise subjects which are heavenly, spiritual, and from the Word of God, the Bible. Right. Now, why is that so essential? I mean, obviously, a Christian should want to talk about spiritual things and be interested in discussing the Lord and the things of the Lord. What is the reason, though, that the Christian should really be mindful of having spiritual conversations? Well, I would give two reasons. First of all, because we grow in grace and we become more spiritual and more heavenly minded when it is our practice to cultivate the habit of speaking one with another concerning spiritual things. So we benefit ourselves and those that listen to us. Um, And the second point is that sometimes people's lives are totally changed through hearing spiritual conversation. And I quote in the little book uh, the case of John Bunyan, who overheard some old ladies sitting in the door of their house in England, and they were talking about their own experience of finding Christ for their Savior. And as he overheard them speaking about their sins and their forgiveness through Christ, John Bunyan was utterly shocked. He said his heart was shaken, he says, and it led to his conversion. And he wrote so many books, 60 books in 60 years, they say usually, and uh, it shows their conversation, then these ladies' conversation, did tremendous good. And that's what we can do if we become careful about our spiritual conversation. Yes, that's so important to understand the impact that that would have on somebody, but also on ourselves, because I found whenever I speak about the Lord with other Christians, that always benefits me. I always have another Christian imparting some wisdom to me that I didn't previously have. So we benefit and we also give benefit to others when we engage in spiritual conversation. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Both parties are benefited, both the hearer 
I'm the speaker, yes. Yes, and I like when you say our duty as believers is to become the most spiritual people we can be. I love that you said that because there is a trend, at least here in the United States, of Christians trying to downplay, oh, well, we don't want to be too otherworldly. We don't want to be so engaged in heavenly mindedness that we're no good to the earth and those sorts of thoughts. Where do you think we go wrong when we begin to talk that way? Because I do believe that you're right, that we are to be more spiritual, that we are to be stronger Christians and more mature Christians than we are in our present state? Well, the idea of being so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good uh, sounds very well for quotation. It's a clever little pattern of words, but it's absolutely not the teaching of the Bible. The Bible encourages the Lord's people to grow in grace and a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we look at the life of Christ in the four Gospels, we notice that never, ever, does he say anything trivial or unimportant? He is always speaking in a manner which is edifying to the hearers and beneficial to the hearers, sometimes in a very challenging way, as when he was speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes. So our duty is to be patterned after the Lord Jesus Christ and after the teaching of Scripture, which teaches us uh, we should not be careless about our speech, but seek to edify one another by our life and by our speech. Yes. Right. In your ministry, how have you seen heavenly mindedness being received by those you've ministered to over the years? Do you see heavenly mindedness growing more rare or increasing? How do you see things from a ministerial perspective? Well, that's a very good question. It's hard to give an immediate answer to that um, because there are, of course, Christians and Christians. Some Christians that we have over here, and I've seen that in other parts of the world, Uh, are those who really want to become more spiritual, which is our duty. But there is a strain of Christianity in the modern world which seems to be content with the slightest amount of spirituality we can get. Hmm. And that is a very big mistake. And if we are to go by the Bible, as distinct from the pattern of some churches today, then there's no doubt about it. We must seek to glorify God by following the pattern of his word, and that is to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Do In other words, are we loving the world too much, and how do we evaluate whether or not we love the world too much? Well, I would say the factor is this. We must realize life is very short. We won't be here for long. Soon we shall all be in eternity. Now, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has made it very clear that those who are most obedient to the Word of God will be highest in his kingdom in glory. But those Christians who are most worldly-minded and careless about the way they keep God's Word, they will be among the lowest of those in eternity. Both will be in heaven, which is, of course, what Christ has purchased for us by his blood on the cross, dying for us. But we would all wish, surely, surely, we'd all wish to be as high as we can, in the kingdom of glory. What a wonderful point. We're going to go to a very quick break. We'll be back with the Reverend Maurice Roberts. How do I develop heavenly mindedness and spiritual conversation? We'll talk it over when we come back on Janet Mefford today. The 
The ministry of preborn is there for moms in crisis who are choosing between life and death for their preborn babies. Meet Sophie. At 22 weeks pregnant, Sophie was pressured by her mother and boyfriend to terminate her pregnancy. After meeting with a preborn counselor, she found the love and support she needed. After I had that first ultrasound and I saw her and I was looking at the pictures over and over and over again, that's when I decided I was going to stand up to my mother and tell her, no, I can't do an abortion. Sophie chose life and now she's awaiting the birth of her baby girl. Every day, Preborn is on the front lines fighting Planned Parenthood to help young moms just like Sophie to choose life. For a gift of $140 today, you can help to rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward health other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. I love this topic. How do I develop heavenly mindedness and spiritual conversation? It's a booklet from the Reverend Maurice Roberts, who is joining us on today's program. And I'm so glad that he is doing so. He's an author, international conference speaker, and emeritus minister in the Free Church of Scotland, continuing. And I so appreciate, Reverend Roberts, you're bringing these things to the forefront. You were making the point before we went to the break about... Christians who are very diligent in their obedience will have a higher place in glory than Christians who are more neglectful of their obedience. We will all be in heaven. But that's it's interesting because when you say that, I very rarely hear Christians talking about that. And I'm wondering if that's part of the problem. Well, it well, may well be. But if so, we need to read carefully what the Lord Jesus Christ teaches in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5, and the verses are to be found there, and these are the things that Christ said. He says, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Yes. He says that the law of God will last as long as the world lasts, as our duty, the pattern of duty. And then he said, Those who teach others to break the Ten Commandments or to be careless will be the least in the kingdom of God, and those who keep the Ten Commandments, they will be the highest in the kingdom of God. 
That's Matthew 5. So there's no doubt that is a teaching of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Exactly. I think part of the problem in our churches today in a lot of circles is this problem of antinomianism, where uh, irrespective of Romans chapter 6, there are Christians who believe, well, I'm saved by grace, so it really doesn't matter what I do after I'm saved. I'm forgiven. Christ died for my sins and put them away, and I know that my place is secure in heaven. Uh, How would you advise a Christian like that to think about passages like Matthew chapter 5 and what the Lord really did have to say about the importance of obedience. Yes, well, the mistake which many people make is they don't understand the difference between antinomianism on the one hand and um, a false form of gospel, which is uh, certainly quite possible for people to have. The gospel teaches we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Right. So we're not in any sense justified or saved by our own good works. So good works in no sense enter into the experience of being converted. And of course that's been strongly emphasized by campaigns and meetings and uh, by the missions who call you to go to the front to make a profession of faith. That's absolutely right. We must make a profession of faith if we are to become true Christians. But What is not being emphasized in our generation is that when we are converted, when we are saved, when we are justified by faith in Christ, the rule of duty is the Ten Commandments. And that is something which has been lost sight of in many cases. Well, it has. And and when we're talking about heavenly-mindedness, how do you develop a broader place for the Lord in your thoughts? Obviously, you must spend time in the Word of God, meditating, memorizing, studying, going deeper into the Word of God. But what would be some of your recommendations to a young Christian, perhaps, on how to cultivate heavenly-mindedness? Well, to come back to the question of the Ten Commandments, I would undoubtedly say it's very important that we should study those Ten Commandments and we should apply them in detail to our own lives. If I may just take an example or two, which I think will illustrate the way I would answer your question, it is this. Take the Third Commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, many Christians allow themselves to use minced oaths, such as gee and gosh and golly and crikey, heavens above. Now, all of those expressions might seem innocent enough to the average reader, but they're all blasphemy. Hmm. Gee is almost certainly short for Jesus. Golly is short for God. Gosh is short for God. Crikey is short for Christ. So if the Christian allows himself to use these words without realizing it, he is actually blaspheming the God who has saved his soul. So it's very important to study the Ten Commandments. And if I may just add one further point to that, the great Puritans have done tremendous work studying and explaining to us the Ten Commandments. And I do recommend the Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism. Both of these books are tremendously good on the whole subject of the place of the moral law. Very, very true. And it's very important, I think, that every Christian really doubles down on studying the Ten Commandments and uses all those resources to further our understanding. Because I think that's part of the problem. We don't want to do a lot of self-examination. At least I don't all the time. And I know I need to as a Christian, because when we do self-examine according to God's Word, We will find ourselves convicted. But isn't that the purpose of the Word of God, to convict us of our sin? Yes, to comfort us and encourage us, but also to convict us where we are sinning.
happening so that we may repent. That is right. And as Christians, um, we must look at it from two points of view. First of all, we know because we're justified through Christ and his blood that we will not be condemned for our sins. But we must at the same time remind ourselves that if we wish to glorify the God who has saved us and show our gratitude to him, we must do everything we can to be as holy as we can because the more holy we are, the more we glorify God and the greater will be our reward, as we said earlier. Very true. And you mentioned five faculties of the soul that have to be taken into account if we're serious about heavenly mindedness. You mentioned the mind and the will, the emotions, the memory and the conscience. Now, that's interesting. The memory. How would you, for example, deal with the memory when you're dealing with heavenly mindedness? That the memory has been given to us by God so that we may store up in our memory the Word of God and make sure we know it. Yes. And the more we know the Word of God, the more able we are, first of all, to fight against temptation, and secondly, to guide ourselves in the way to go ahead. And, of course, a perfect illustration of the first of those points is our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, when he was tempted, how did he answer the temptations of the devil? Well, it's very clear. He kept on saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he was quoting verbatim the words of God against the devil to silence the devil and uh, so that he protect his own soul from sin. Yes. And of course, he knew his word good enough, well enough that when the devil was quoting scripture out of context, the Lord could correct him with scripture. So he knew what, yeah. Absolutely good point, yes. Yes. You need to know the interpretation of the text, yes. Absolutely, to master the word of God. Now, when it comes to spiritual conversation, the other part of your book, I think this is really great. You offer some suggestions on helping us to develop spiritual conversation. One of those suggestions involves urging people on the Lord's Day and those around us to only talk about biblical subjects. And I thought, that sounds wonderful. I think that's a great suggestion. How would you implement that? How would you go about doing that? Well, of course, we have to be courteous. We can't be rough with two people. But um, I would say the thing to do is, if you're in conversation with somebody, um, take the initiative to raise a subject which is relative to the Lord's Day. I'm assuming we're talking now about speaking to somebody who is a professing Christian. And we can bring a subject like this and say, ah, this morning in my private devotions, I came across a wonderful text of scripture, which says we shall not be tempted above that which we are able to bear, but God will sustain us in our temptations. Wasn't that a comforting thought? Hmm. And then they will respond to that. And then you can add a bit more and then you can teach them in that way to follow a line which is both uh, biblical and also practical and for the good of all. To train people by example, I think it's the best answer. Well, and doesn't this also develop in Christians an appetite for more? That the more you read the Bible, the more Bible you want. The more you pray, the more you want to pray. The more that you speak of the things of God with other Christians, the more you want to do so. Uh, That is true, and it's also true as you get older, as some of us are doing, because uh, memory is not so sharp when you're old as it is when you're young. And so it's also also good for the elderly person to have his memory refreshed uh, as to, you know, things we knew and we've almost forgotten. So it's good for them, too. That's great. What would you say the benefits would be to the church, Reverend Roberts, if we all as a church developed more heavenly mindedness and spiritual conversation? How might that improve our fellowship with one another? Well, it would certainly stimulate one another to be diligent in our private devotions. 
He would stimulate one another to be careful in bringing up our families, disciplining them, teaching them. He would also be very important to stir one another up to read the best books because reading of good books clearly is a very important factor in growing in grace and knowledge. So all these factors and uh, increase in careful obedience to the Ten Commandments, all of these would be the fruits of discussing the truth one with another in a conversational way. Well, it's wonderful. This is a great booklet from Reformation Heritage Books, How Do I Develop Heavenly Mindedness and Spiritual Conversation from the Reverend Maurice Roberts. And it was just an honor to have you here, Reverend Roberts. I loved reading your booklet and it was wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. My great privilege. All right. God bless you. Thank you again. And thanks for joining us on Janet Mufford today. Always a privilege to have you along. We'll see you next time. God bless you too.